0: I am so much more interested in people having my work that actually care about it. Like, you had it, you looked at it, you loved it, you appreciated it, you thought about it, you contemplated on it, and you believed in me. Because you're not paying for the work, you're paying for me. You believed in me.
1: You're listening to Our Shared Field, where we bring artists into conversation with people from outside of the arts. I'm your host, Austin Camille, and welcome to part two of the fifth conversation of the season. Today, I talk with artist Charles Trey Mason III, who, on next week's episode, will be in conversation with microbiologist and immunologist Alexander Soare, who we heard from last week. Trey, a Baltimore-based artist who spent time in Philadelphia for his master's degree, talks to me about all of the people who have made him who he is as an artist. Trey's work ranges a medium and grapples with the grief, family, and love of his daily life as well as, in his words, the performative act of blackness for him and his body. He creates paintings, videos, collage, installation, all mostly abstract with the exception of written language. Statements like, we need better, shot, they stepped, too much, your little voice, are written across and embedded within his works.
0: My name is Charles Mason III. I also go by Trey. Um, I'm based in Baltimore, I'm from Baltimore, and I would consider myself uh, an artist um, with a focus on installation. But I think at the moment, I'm just focused on the way in which things are presented and placed and how objects interact with each other. I think the process of becoming an artist, not to be too cliche, was something I wanted to do as a child, but it was very apparent to me that I was not gonna be an artist. Uh, When I was like in sixth grade, I was applying to go to this magnet school and they said, draw these things. And I drew them and I didn't get in. And so when I didn't get in, I like closed my sketchbook and I was like, I'm done with drawing. And of course you learn these things as you get older, but as a young person in middle school and I was the only artist in my family, there was no one telling like, you'll get better. There was no one saying like, oh, we can help you put me in a class or something like that. It just wasn't a thing. And so I went through high school Um, studying graphic design and then going to undergrad and doing the same thing. And um, it was fine. Graphic design is a very functional, very useful skill that I learned. And I appreciate my faculty members for teaching me. But it wasn't until after school when I graduated undergrad that I was like, oh, what do I do now? And I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I mean, I didn't even want to go to college, really. I was figuring all these things out. And so it was 2014 and I was like, all right. I applied to a, a grad program. I came across Parsons, the new school in New York. And so I put together a portfolio and I got in. And so in 2014, I hit grad school and I was there three months. And it was also around the time that Mike Brown had been killed. And so I just I just wasn't feeling the whole school thing, honestly. But I I will tell you this and I tell everyone this. If it wasn't for the three months I spent in New York, I wouldn't be the artist that I am now because I learned about all these black and brown artists I had no idea about. I had no idea, no one was teaching me. And so when I went to Parsons, I learned about Hank Willis Thomas, Dred Scott, Sam Durant. I learned about uh, Betty Saar, um, Allison Saar. I learned about all these different artists and I had black faculty members who were teaching me. One in particular, Stephanie Jemison. Um, she pushed me in a very particular way. And from that point on, I kind of was like, all right, art is what I wanted to do because I felt like I was home. Um, When I got to Parsons, I had done all these things throughout life. Like, I had a camera. My mom got me a camera. I would always take pictures. I had written and won like little awards for creative writing when I was in elementary school. I had done all these like things that never got put together into a tangible thing until I got to grad school. And then you learn graphic design. So, not only am I interested in writing and taking images, and then I learned graphic design, and then I go to grad school the first time. I'm like, oh, You can do all these things. You know what I mean? (laughs) Uh Like, it was just. Yeah, and all at the
1: same time if you want.
0: (laughs) Right. You know what I mean? Like, Um, right. And so that's kind of how I ended up on this route of being an artist.
1: Uh, Was your family really supportive of it?
0: No, as a hobby. Oh, really? Yeah. But no, 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 no. It would be like, oh, that's nice. This is nice or something. But not understanding that I can not only do something with making art and art making but also be successful, air quotes, in doing so. And I uh-huh. say air quotes because my success or what I would think of success is different than anyone would think of success. just based on our experiences and our conditions. You know what I mean? Yeah, Like, yeah. you know, there are so many ways to be an artist, but it wasn't every anything that was ever cultivated and fostered in my home.
1: So you, you talked a little bit about um, this idea of, of what success, air quote, might mean um, in general. For you, is there like a particular type of artist that you were hoping to be that you are working toward? I
0: think when I think about working toward being a particular type of artist, I don't actually know what that means.
2: Hmm.
0: Not to say that I float around and I'm just being blown by the wind, but to a degree I am. And so I only can answer this question by saying that if there's any artist that I find great joy in the way in which they move and handle the art world, it is David Hammonds.
1: Artist David Hammons, born in 1943, is one of the most influential American artists alive. His sculptural works often use objects from urban African-American life. His work investigates the role of the artist and the value of art in a world beyond gallery walls by transforming these objects into metaphors for the experience of an outsider, specifically as a person of color.
0: It is directly because of him I feel like I can do the things that I want and need to do. He is my my living elder. He is an ancestor. He is all these things. And because of the way he moved and because of the way his friends moved, like Betty Sar and Carrie James Marshall and uh, Singer ngudi and because of them existing, I am able to do what I can do. Mm, like mm-hmm. I'm very much interested in that that flipping imagery upside down and flipping the artwork upside down. Mm. And questioning why things exist the way they exist. Like, why have they been done the same way for so long? Like, it's actually, there's so much irony in the art world.
1: <laughs> yes. Yeah, you there is. I, mean? <laughs> I do know exactly what you mean. Yeah.
0: Because, so, like, how how can you, uh, I want to say, for the last eight years, eight to nine years, say that you want to change and then look us dead in our eyes and, and not change? You know what I mean? How can you say you want to collect? um artists of colors work mm-hmm. and, and and women and even that distinction is weird too. But how do you can how can you say that you want to do all these things and not do it? Like most museums in this country have mm-hmm. stolen artifacts. You know what I mean? That's how they're they're built.
1: That is fully the foundation. Yeah, absolutely.
0: Absolutely.
1: Man. And so
0: how can you sit here and say that you want to do all these things when you literally have something that was stolen? brought by one of your benefactors um, on the black market and not question that. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And so the irony behind it is so, it's laughable, but it's really someone punching you in the face and saying, bro, where you got that shiner from? You know what I mean? From you, you hit me, you did it. And them saying and denying that they did it. That's wild. That's, That's a whole different thing. But, and I say live like David Hammers is because I don't, I have to directly contend with that history. And so I don't know if I want I want to be, yes, in history books that I want to be written about. And I want to like, sell artworks and be happy about the ways in which they're being sold and be happy about the ways in which the money is being used. I want to do all those things. But at the very moment, I'm just kind of trying to like exist in a way that is comfortable and brings me peace of mind.
2: Mm-hmm. Like
0: uh, At one point in time, I, I made the claim that I didn't want to be in any shows this year. I'm not actively seeking it in the way in which we're used to actively seeking it, especially when you're fresh out of grad school. Yeah. And it's because I just don't have the, like, I had the labor, but then the pandemic hit and I realized no one had me. It's so very labor intensive as an artist, as an emerging artist, to apply to all these things and then at the same time deal with the fact that now because we're in a pandemic and now all these things are happening, All these institutions are being aired out. And so I follow all the Instagram accounts. I listen to all the artists and all the beefs that they had with these institutions because clearly something is wrong. Mm -hmm. When you treat someone who looks like me, I don't care if I don't identify as such or I don't care if my gender is different, they look like me. And so because they look like me and you feel like it's okay to treat them this way, Mm -hmm. then I feel like I should not apply to your organization because- it could happen to me or could happen to someone I know there. Like it's not helping anything by applying to these institutions and just putting it on my resume and saying, yeah, I got into this.
1: That rules out a lot of institutions, doesn't it?
0: Listen, almost all of them. Mm -hmm. And so I, and not to backtrack, but, it just means I look at things different. For example, for example, I want to give you a, a really quick example. There's this org in New York and it's for like, they you can apply for a solo show or a group show or the curator show or something like that. And so my mentor in the chair at the program I was at at the time, he sent it to me told me about it and I looked into it. I looked into it, right? And so uh-huh. I looked at the board and I looked at the people who were in it. All of them were white folks. And I said, no, nah, I'm good. Like, you can't sit here and tell me that you're interested in anything. Anything. Like I don't care if how diversely your whiteboard is, it's still white. And so for me, when I see that, clearly you don't care about me or the people that look like me.
1: Yeah. If you don't have any kind of actualized diversity in that room, I mean that's it 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 won't go any further. I think you're completely right. There's a there's a handful of things in there that I want to circle back around to. I I wanna hear a little bit more about your, your daily practice, the things that you're doing. Um, and I'm sure it's changed since the past year as well. What, what are the things within your, your day-to-day life that actually sustain you as an artist?
0: What sustains my practice and sustains me on a day-to-day basis is the unconscious and conscious thankfulness that I feel to be able to see another day. And I mean that in the most literal and metaphorical way possible. Um, because of COVID, because of being at higher at risk, um, because of family, to be living through a constant performative act of my body. Mm. Um, and so for me, I think I'm just thankful to be able to be a person another day. And even in the sense that um, the country is divided on the ways in which to handle COVID-19, even in the sense that I still want to be a person and see my friends and family, but also keep them safe.
2: Mm. I
0: sustain myself, kind of just being thankful. And I had a studio visit with um, someone and they talked about grief. And I had a conversation with someone and they was like, these are the things you want to talk about love, family, and grief. Hmm. And I think this entire time I've been making and thinking about grief and pain and suffering and love and conditional love and, and what all that means at any given time for hmm. me. Um, and only through the work am I able to process these things and not directly um, and literally but in the sense that, like, I make because my interest lies in mark making and object making and what color can do as a distraction. And I unpack that and I sit with the work and I have conversations around the work and say, So, what do you see? And I get these responses and I realize, I realized a long time ago, my work, the basis of my work is in death. And I'm reliving it because I understand that death is real, it's not fake. Like, mm-hmm. I, my life is like, in 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 peril. Like other people's lives are in peril. Like they're constantly trying to
1: survive. How how has this past year changed how you work, um, how you want to work, how you want to show or share your work? Um, what well, What was this past year like for you?
0: <laughs> Hell. <sighs> um, yeah. The past year, this past year was. <clears throat> This past year um, was tough, right? Um, I got defeated a lot. And um, I mean defeated, like really things defeated me. Like it was tough, it was sad, depressed, anxiety, all these things. I really wanted to leave art alone. I wanted to leave it alone because what is it really doing? Hmm. Like like, seriously, what is it really doing? Like art itself, I don't know if it makes a difference that people love to say that it does and I am ready for all the smoke for anybody who wants to challenge that notion. We all want attention. We all believe our voice needs to be heard and that the opinion that we have on this particular subject matter needs to be seen and heard. Like No matter how you break it, the cookie crumbles. Mm. We all want attention. Mm -hmm. If it didn't matter, we wouldn't put our names on things. We wouldn't celebrate when we're in the New Yorker. We wouldn't celebrate when we get an award. If that didn't matter, we would move about it completely different. I embrace the fact. I think what I say has an ability to do something. I used to be like, I wanted to change the world through art. I used to be like that all the time. That was like the main thing I used to say. And then I started to realize, oh, like art is so limited. Oh, like who has access? Uh, one of the things I've done for a long time is give away art. <clears throat> when I was in Philadelphia, I had a lot of letterpress posters. I would give some away and I would put it in the work. I would give some away. I would just be like, people would say, you could sell it. I was like, I would sell them too, but I would give a lot away as well. Same with these, drawing, these smaller drawings of flowers. I make the larger ones and I give the smaller ones away. Part of it was about access because I'm more worried about my work going to places where people love it. I understand that people resell work all the time to come up on a price and a profit. That's capitalism, that's business, whatever you want to call it. But I am so much more interested in people having my work that actually care about it and want to have it, even mm-hmm. if it's just for 10 years. Like you had it, you looked at it, you loved it, you appreciated it, you thought about it, you yeah. contemplated you on it. You lived
1: with it. Yeah.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. And you believed in me because you're not paying for the work, you're paying for me. You believed in me. And so now it's me. And trust me, I'm an emerging artist like anyone else. I just got out of I don't know what I'm doing like anyone else. But I am so, so pressed about trying to make this thing happen, trying to make this thing work. And I'm not trying to wait until I quote unquote make it to decide to want to give back. Like, I need to help now, be okay with myself, and be like, there's so much more to this than like making money. There's so much more to this than like being in a great show or something like that. And so I work really hard. And so, like, just going back to like with this pandemic and what um, the Black Lives Matter movement has done, to be honest, it hasn't changed much for me, (laughs) honestly. The way I felt last year and two years ago about everything happening against Black and brown bodies is the way I'm going to always continue to help, to continue to feel until like something actually makes a difference and changes, right? But the only thing that I think changed for the country, and I, I would arguably say this for the country, I don't actually have no quantifiable proof, <laughs> but I think the proof is in the pudding,
2: right? Uh-huh.
0: If we weren't in a pandemic forced to see, forced to hear, forced to live and do with, none of the things that happened would have happened. What I'm saying is though, police brutality is here and it doesn't seem to want to go anywhere. So that's happening, right? Mm. But what we saw during the pandemic is that suddenly everyone had to hyper-focus on it. Yeah. They couldn't ignore it because of sports. They couldn't ignore it because of their job. They couldn't ignore it because of social media, not being on social media. They couldn't ignore it because of where they live. They couldn't ignore it. My question is like, where were they for anyone else? Like it's been there. I mean, we can we since 2012, it's been there. Since 1992, it's been there. Since what 1955, I think it's immaterial. It's been there. It's been there. Like since lynching, it's been there. What was the catalyst? What changed? It was everybody else's turn to see everything. And the truest things I know is that anything that we do takes time, right?
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And that. We need to understand healing is not a linear thing, but something that takes constant time and work to do, and that you can't really heal in the midst of your trauma. And trauma is funny, right? Because trauma, for some people, looks like a literal pain, anger, or something, right? Some like act or something. Trauma is everything and nothing at the same time. And I don't know if anyone's able to process it because we literally have to live every day.
1: I was watching that piece of yours, Two Lane Stories. Oh, um, really? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, yeah. Of course, <laughs> I do my research. <laughs> and um, there was one. It was. It was in the beginning. There was one particular sentiment that um, the artist Ernest Shaw Jr. said mm-hmm. um, in describing the obstacles that he faces as a black male artist, mm-hmm. and the the sentence was um, the trauma that I experience as a black person and a Black person that is an artist and who is extremely sensitive. And there was something about that mention of sensitivity that felt so powerful and and being deeply and constantly sensitive to your traumas, the traumas around you, which feels similar to what you're talking about right now. Would you talk about this particular project, how it kind of fits in and sits in your your practice, why it's important to you?
0: That's actually funny, uh, this project in particular, because not many, many folks actually ask me about it. Oh, really? Yeah.
1: The project that we're talking about, called Two Lane Stories, is a documentary film that Trey began in 2016. In it, he interviews six Black male artists about their work, their lives, and the challenges that they face.
0: All right. Really quickly,
1: yeah.
0: um, I have a huge interest in image making through photography and video. I like, mm. I'm so interested in films, music videos, all types of things in the way in which I can use these skills that are being presented to me and create a story. I'm so interested in whatever story I can tell. All right. And so this project in particular, I started it in 2016. So each and every person in that video are mentors to me in 2015. I was working on a couple of projects with a few people from Morgan State University. And then I got connected with a guy named E.L. Briscoe. E.L. Briscoe is arguably a huge reason and why I think the way I think. He's a he was he's a professor at Morgan and now he's the visual arts coordinator at Morgan. And during that time, I Kim Rooster also was at Morgan. And I just was like, like these are these black men who are artists, who are aware of themselves as people and individuals, even their privileges and the way in which they took art was so serious. Like they took, they were so considered about art making. It wasn't a joke for them. And Ken telling me about stories of the racism he he had when he was going to Micah. And so it was just like, this wealth of knowledge from these black men who I, I just had never experienced. Um, and so I was like, yo, some like, It kind of had to be done. And so I ended up like meeting Ernest Shaw and I ended up uh, meeting Jeffrey Kent. And I was like, I know the people. I knew the people who I should interview. Like these were all personal connections. These are all people I had like built relationships with who had been a mentor for me at some point in time, who had been a friend for me at some point in time, who had kind of like did something. Like for me to be who I am, I am directly linked to each and every person who added something to my life positive, negative, whatever, like they impacted my life in some way. And sp- In particular, it was important for me to see Black men who were artists, who were talented, who were doing this work and who were like like exploring these concepts because I, I just hadn't seen it. I, I didn't grow up on it. I didn't know what that was. It was a project. It was a love project because I did everything. Like I filmed it. I edited it. I, I put it together. I had multiple versions of it. Like Jeffrey was like, do it in Black and white. Uh-huh. I was like, ooh, that, like you know what I mean. Like it was, just, and they gave me their time and space. They didn't have to. They didn't have to. You know what I mean. And like mm-hmm. I took some horrible angles and I took some bad, but it was a learning experience. <laughs> like it was like wild. It was it was just wild. Like looking at the unedited stuff, it was a wild experience. And I wouldn't have changed it. I I wouldn't have changed it for anything. And I wanted to. Show their work because it was so important. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah. Well, I think I think that was why it was also such a striking piece. I, I've never seen a piece like that. You know, and there's something too that that I wanted to mention. Um, you talked earlier about this idea of you know love, family, and grief as being um, kind of these touchstones that you're working with and working through. And it's interesting because those are all like those are collective actions. You know, and And maybe that's also why this piece felt so important because it felt really collective um
0: mm, thank you like yeah. I've, I've never even like maybe like so one funny. or two things yeah yeah yeah
1: i mean i'm down to talk about your paintings too like i've got questions about those <laughs> for sure <laughs> in okay so let's talk about your paintings also one of the things that i was noticing when i was looking at it this really intense push and pull between you know marks and material and uh, motions things that are feel things that feel abstract um And then this opposite, very explicit, straightforward language that you superimpose. I'm curious to hear about the relationship between those two things and and how you're kind of holding them together.
0: I think in an abstract way. And so everything I do is like kind of grown from that and then blossoms from that. Mm. And so text and language, I can't not appreciate and realize my graphic design background in my art making process because i did it for four years you know yeah. there's no way that that's denied and so in graphic design you're often learning how language at least in my opinion learning how language can be used as imagery you understand why certain signs are certain colors you understand what like they do for you you understand marketing you understand all this th- different mm-hmm. things and understanding that and then learning later that drawing is everything. Like drawing is mark making, it's writing. These are all forms of sketches and drawings that we can make doodles, all these things and learning about that. So I'm bringing all these things up because they all complement how the matter of fact language is kind of presented in the work a lot of times within that Mm -hmm. interweaving abstraction of image making and mark making onto uh, a piece of paper. Because I started out very much so early on in grad school just writing everything. I just was never confident in how I made things. So Mm. language became easy for me to incorporate into the work. And so I've constantly evolved into being more confident into the mark of like rendering something halfway decent, if not completely abstract. Right. Mm -hmm. It didn't start out that way because I, I never took any painting classes. I never took any I took a drawing one drawing class, but the fundamental things that a lot of folks had just wasn't in my toolkit. And so I was writing, and then I got introduced to letterpress by Amos Kennedy Jr., who came to PAFA for for a workshop.
1: PAFA, the school that Trey references, is the Pennsylvania Academy of Fine Arts, the program he attended in Philadelphia for graduate school.
0: And I I took off running, and slowly but surely, the written word started to leave, and I started adding posters, because then I could add posters and rip them up and, like, place them on something. And then poster making through letterpress allowed me to continue to explore language, and Ebonics as a language that should be recognized.
1: Ebonics is a term that describes American Black English, regarded as a language in its own right, rather than as a dialect of Standard English.
0: Like, any slang should be recognized as an actual language. And so that allowed me to explore that and place things in. And then the matter, like, the abstract way of making, I'm just interested in building up layers. Because... It was it's, that started with double consciousness and thinking about duality
2: mm. and how
0: I'm constantly being presented as one thing, but no one actually knows me. Mm. Not to say that I'm often hiding things, even though sometimes I am, because information is power, but to say more specifically that your perceived ideas of who I am are not who I am.
1: Yeah. Well, it's like you, you talked about performance earlier, too, you know, and, and always performing yourself, performing your body.
0: Absolutely. And that's where that came from. I think I am a performer, but I think I'm a performer because of how I have to move through space and should move through spaces.
1: Because you do have ties to Philadelphia, you know, having gotten having gone to PAFA here. um, What was it like? What was it like making work and, and developing some of your practice in Philadelphia?
0: It was amazing. Yeah. I felt Philadelphia opened their arms to me and showed me so much love. Mm -hmm. Like in such a way I had never experienced before in my life. I felt like there were two faculty members in particular while I was at PAFA, who because of them, it was almost like standoff sometimes. Like I would just (laughs) do what I wanted to do. But um, Kate Moran and D.D.A. William, it was the way in which they always challenged me in such a supportive and loving way. I remember, actually, this is what did it for me. I remember going to have uh, lunch, I think it was me, DDA, and we were talking about teaching and I was talking about how I didn't want to be a bother to him because I felt like everybody was like a bothersome, you know, everybody wanted to talk to DDA, everyone wanted to have a trip with DDA, everyone, Uh like, that's just what it was, you know, when you have phenomenal faculty, that's what happens, right? And so, like, he is directly the reason I went because while he was chair at PAFA, I believe he was one of, if not the only person of color that was chair, Hmm. Of a program, of an MFA program. There were not many.
2: Yeah.
0: If there were, I didn't know where they were. Uh, and I looked. And so knowing how rare it is to have a person of color, let alone a queer uh immigrant, Haitian American,
2: mm-hmm.
0: black, black man, like he tall, like like black man, you know what I mean? Like I say all these things because they matter. Because I can only imagine what he had to go through. Because of what I had to go through. And then thinking about what my dad had to go through. And like other black men in my life. Mm. Because we all have gone through something. And I understand the privileges of being a man. But that don't make this any easier. Being a black person. Mm. But going back to the story. I basically told him I didn't want to be a bothersome. And he was like, what are you talking about? I was like, yeah, I just didn't want to bother you. You know what I mean? And he basically goes on to tell me. I'm butchering this story. I'm paraphrasing (laughs) it. He basically goes on to tell me. That he is the thing for me. And for me, as in like me and my other friends and like Uh. the people of color at the school, because he went to, when he went to grad school, it wasn't many, if any, like him who were there, Mm -hmm. right? Just like anywhere, there's not many, if any. That's really the statement. And so he was the, he does love teaching, but he also understood the importance of being a black person in these spaces Mm -hmm. and how to be that conduit, to be that thing to help us through the struggle, through the times that we needed. And we didn't even understand why we were frustrated or sad. He was that. And I didn't realize that until we had this conversation. And then after that, I was like, "Yo, I got." I would talk to him. I would reach out to him. I was like, "Cause I didn't know." So imagine having that in your mind, and then being able to like really be able to flourish. And that takes so much weight off a young emerging. It just takes a lot of weight off a black and brown artist mm. of all time of all kinds. Mm. You know what I mean? Because of him, and because of a, a, another friend of mine, that's why I teach.
1: Talking about the power of mentorship, relationship, and community for Trey led us into the topic of collaboration, and why he thinks it's important to acknowledge how collaboration shapes him, both as a person and as an artist.
0: You can have a conversation with your little sibling, and from that conversation it spills out 30 pieces that all sell the first time you show them, you know what mm-hmm. I mean? And that's collaborative, but it depends on how a person seeks validation, too. like. Mm-hmm. Do you seek a fa- validation by collaborating with someone genuinely? Do you seek it by like wanting to take ownership? Like when I look at the credits of music soundtracks, mm-hmm. it's like it's like 20 people in the room or 20 people working on a piece. And do do we like do that same thing or have that same thing or enjoy that same thing? Do we, Should we start labeling every person that had a thought or like, and I think it's something we have to wrestle with
2: yeah. because
0: I know for a fact, if it wasn't for the conversations I had with people, the studio visits I had with people, I don't think we could make the work. That's good. The good work doesn't come through solitude. Good work doesn't come through being a hermit. The work is made in that, but not actually unpacked, right? Mm, You're yeah. never really alone in this process because you need help you need help. And it took me a long time to understand that. But I tell you right now, some of the best conversations I had or have, they go right into the work. It goes right into the work because I'm thinking about the possible implications of how something can go. Like It pushes me. Like I need that push. Mm-hmm. And so that's what I've been thinking about. That collaborative tension that you have from conversations, people pushing you, people asking you the right questions. And so I'm talking about collaboration and conversation, mm-hmm. but collaboration can look like a lot of different things for a lot of different people. For me, a lot of times it looks like having these conversations with my community, sharing uh, articles with my friends is a collaborative process. I have a whole group chat with my friends and we talk about art. That community that we've created has allowed us to like, bring things into our classrooms and, bring, and talk about our work differently. That's a collaborative effort. Because of them, you have me.
1: Join us next week on Our Shared Field to hear the conversation between Charles Trey Mason III and the microbiologist and immunologist, Alexander Soirey. I think you could talk to almost any scientist and they'll point to one mentor who really pushed them and really made science more than something that was just out of a textbook and made it exciting, made it something that they wanted to pursue.
0: I think about being a young child and not going to that many museums, only going to one and not feeling comfortable. And what that meant for me, if I'm thinking about what I would like to see as I was growing up, it's artists who look like me.
1: You can learn more about the guests and follow their interactions on our website, chat.squarespace.com. Music for this episode is by Emmanuel Oamang and Perpetual Motion, a Philly jazz fusion group that combines elements of jazz, hip hop, and rock, led by local award winning trumpet player Emmanuel Oamang III. Thank you to the Center for Humanities at Temple University for hosting this podcast and to our technical director, Eric Carbonara, at Nada Sound Studio. This podcast is recorded in North Philadelphia on the ancestral lands of the Lenni Lenape people, whose presence and resilience in Pennsylvania continues to this day. Until next time, I'm Austin Camille. Thank you for listening to Our Shared Field.